like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 15 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from this passage of Scripture uh, in a moment here. 2 Samuel 15, I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Uh, two notes. One, some of you have said to me over the last couple of weeks that you're having trouble finding the sermons online. Well, it's not due to lack of effort on our part. We're really trying to make sure they're there. Aaron Krauss works diligently at that, and sometimes the fates of the computers foil his best plans. So he is working on it, and uh, thank you for your patience and your interest. The other thing I want to mention is it's good to see uh, Kirk and Beth Whitworth up on the platform helping us with uh, worship this morning. It's always good to have Quentin Witherell playing on the drum set. I've tried to convince Ryan to get his brother to move to Lancaster, but um, to no avail yet. I'll keep praying about that. It's God's will, Quentin. You might as well give in. It's just, I just know. (laughs) You notice that while Kirk was up here worshiping, his hand was slightly raised and the walls of our Baptist church did not fall down. (laughs) Let the worshiper understand. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse... 13 is where we're going to start reading here. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites and Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. Let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you, and also Abiathar's son, Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your own sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. 
Now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything that you hear. So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. (coughs) At the top of the note sheet in your bulletin, you'll see that I entitled this sermon, Welcome Back, David. Welcome Back, David. It's an ironic title. It's meant to be a little uh, of irony there. See, because on the one hand, it communicates that finally here, after all these chapters, we're beginning to see the old David again. The old David is emerging. He's back. See, ever since that day, back in the spring, when he stayed home and his troops went out to war, David has been weak and indecisive. Well, started with his rebellion against God's laws, committing adultery and committing murder. And he was self-centered and indecisive and weak. But here finally, here again, we see David, the man of faith. Well, welcome back. He's generous. He's bold. He's decisive. Here are all the positive signs that we see in his life, that he really is a man after God's own heart. Wonderful. Welcome back, David. That's one side of the story. On the other side of the story, though, the irony is that we're welcoming the old David back while he is actually running away. It's the old David back again, but maybe it's the old David running back because, or old David back again because he is on the run again. So many of the virtues that we see here in this passage in David's life were apparent. They emerged. We saw them when he was on the run from Saul. Now he's running from his own son, Absalom. I wonder, is there a connection? Is there a connection in David's life between the vibrancy of his life with God and the danger that he's facing? Does that ever feel to you like your spiritual life is actually stronger and more fruitful in periods of crisis? Now, why is that? I get to participate in a lot of things as a pastor. It's my great joy. I, I, I am often there for weddings and funerals. I love them both. There's, there's a few greater privileges than to be able to stand up and, and say, it is with great joy that I now pronounce you husband and wife. I love to do that. But actually, I like to do funerals even more. Um, I know it sounds odd. I, it's not that I want people to die. It's not what I'm hoping for. Um, it's just, see, at weddings, people are distracted by a lot of joys. There's a lot of joys on a wedding day. There's Um, lots to see. There's flowers and dresses and music and cake and pictures. There's lots of joys. But at a funeral, people people are more focused. The stress of the crisis has a way of focusing your attention. It's not necessarily a crisis, but I I remember in college when I would uh, get up in the morning to read my Bible and pray, there was a beanbag chair that was sitting in our dorm unit, and, and I used to sit there in the morning to read my Bible and pray. 
And I it was in college, so I was doing all the normal things that college students do. I was studying and, and writing papers and reading books. And, and, and sometimes, I, off times, I stayed up too late and had trouble getting out of bed in the morning. So my, my time for reading the Bible and praying in the morning was really compressed. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself some of those mornings, Oh, I wish I had more time. I can't wait. I can't wait till I go home for Christmas break and then I'll have all the time in the world and I can read my Bible and pray as much as I want. And do you know what I did over Christmas break? I slept a lot and watched a lot of television. Right? Is it possible? Is it normal that your spiritual life is more fruitful in times of crisis than in seasons of ease? I think it's more more than possible. Actually, I think that it is likely. We live in a world, because we live in a world that is infected with rebellion against God, it is often the case that there is more fruit for God's people in the wilderness than there is in the greenhouse. There's more grace in the cancer ward than at Disney World. Brothers and sisters, uh, let us not resent the waves that push us back upon the shore of Christ's sufficiency. Let's, we're going to look at this chapter to jog our memories about what old David is like. Or more generally, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how, how does a person after God's own heart respond to a crisis? What comes back to David? What do we see in his life again that helps him, that, that we can learn that would help us? This is not everything, but 2 Samuel chapter 15 is, uh, uh, helps us ask and answer some central questions. So, Here's what we're going to do. First, from verses 13 through 16, we're going to set the scene. We're going to talk about the context here. And then we're going to look at three elements of David's response to this crisis. All right? So let's first uh, set the scene. The crisis that David is facing is a rebellion that's led by David's own son. Uh, David is on the throne. He's the king. But his son, the crown prince, has decided that he wants to be king. So he is leading an army of people into Jerusalem to conquer it. This trouble's been brewing for a long time, and now Absalom is making his move. Now, what's interesting, Bob Chisholm says that there's a phrase in verse 13. It says, the heart of the people of Israel are with Absalom. He says that reminds him of a phrase that's used in the book of Judges, chapter 9, to describe Abimelech. There was a man whose name was Abimelech, and Abimelech and Absalom have two things in common. Well, three, I suppose. Number one on the list is they both have names that you don't want to use for your children. Okay? So the other thing that Abimelech and Absalom have in common is they both murdered their brothers. Abimelech on a huge scale, uh, Absalom, he killed his brother Amnon. And the second thing they have, uh, another thing they have in common is they both tried to lead this uh, army and take over the nation. And in Judges chapter 9, it says, the citizens of Shechem were inclined to follow Abimelech and the hearts of the people were with Absalom. It's the same phrase in in Hebrew. Uh, I, I point out that comparison for a couple of reasons. One, I want you to remember how skillfully these books are written. This is a divine human book and it is written with great skill and with great care. And, and, and there are references and allusions all the way through to help us understand the message of it. The second thing, the reason I point that out to you, is uh, I want to remind you that the more you read the Bible, the better you will be at reading the Bible. 
So if there's passages and parts of it that you don't understand, keep reading, keep reading. The, you'll get better at it. The better you are, the more you read the Bible, the better you'll get at reading the Bible. All right. That's the crisis, the, the, the rebellion. And David's, David's response to the crisis is to run. Uh, Jerusalem is not a city that right now can be easily defended. And Absalom has with him some of David's closest advisors. We don't know, and David doesn't know, if those advisors are on Absalom's team, but they're at least outside of the city. And if they are with Absalom, it's possible that he ha- they have told Absalom about Jerusalem's defenses. So David's on the run. But I think there's something else going on. Verse 14 says, We have to leave immediately, and if we don't, Absalom is going to put the city to the sword. One of the reasons that David is leaving is because if he is gone, Absalom will spare the rest of the city. There will be no conflict, no destruction of Jerusalem if David is gone. Now remember, this is the old David and he's back again. This is the David who sacrifices himself for the good of others. This is the David who, who puts himself into danger to keep other people safe. The old David, uh, the, the David who was wandering was the sort of David who would send soldiers to die for him to keep him safe. But here David is, is running from the city to keep the city safe. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Here's the old David. Welcome, welcome back, David. Verse 16 tells us, as we finish setting the scene here, that David left ten concubines to take care of the palace. Ten half-wives, pseudo-wives, to take care of the palace. Now, that should ring some bells in your mind. It should make you think of what Nathan the prophet had said to David back in chapter 12. In fact, look at it. here. Flip back with me just a page or two to to, um, 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. Okay, 2 Samuel 12:11. Nathan is telling David about the consequences that he will endure because of his sin. And look what he says in 2 Samuel 12:11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Aha. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this adultery sin in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So when David leaves these concubines behind, and and the author of 2 Samuel tells us about that, we see that God is positioning both Absalom, somebody from David's own household, and David's wives into position so that this discipline that Nathan said would come will take place. Now, uh, Let's pause for a moment here and remember how the original readers of 2 Samuel would have received this text. Remember that 2 Samuel and the books around it were collected and put together for the nation of Israel when they were largely in exile. Most of them were in exile in, in Babylon. So after David died, the nation struggled. Its history is a time, uh, is a story of repeated and consistent rebellion against God, rejection of his law, disregard for his covenant, and because of that, God disciplined by sending them into exile. They'd been sent away from their homes. They had to go east, kicked out uh, of, to, uh, of the land and city of Jerusalem. Now, think about this. Those readers, the original ones, and us, are supposed to pick up this book and notice the parallels. 
There is David, God's great king, who's committed rebellion against God. And because of that, in this chapter, he is being exiled east out of Jerusalem. And the readers of this text are a nation who had a long history of rebellion against God, and they have been exiled out to the east of Jerusalem. So David's life and the nation's life, they're parallel here at this point in time. They've both gone east. Remember we read this last week from Genesis 4. When you go east, like Cain, east of Eden, you're leaving God's presence. And both the nation and David, because of the rebellion against God, are in exile. And, and how did David respond to his exile? Would God ever bring David home from his exile? Uh, is it possible to be faithful to God? Is it possible even to be fruitful in your own spiritual life in exile? Those are the questions that these people would be reading as they pick up this book. Here's David in exile, just like us, suffering for his own rebellion against God, just like us. Is there any hope for him? Well, is it possible to be fruitful in your spiritual life, not just in times of exile, but in times of crisis? The answer to that question, of course, is yes, and now we're going to move to three elements of David's response to this crisis. I'm going to describe them in very general terms. Okay, so here's number one. Receive the encouraging support of others. Receive the encouraging support of others. Verses 17 and 18 tell us how David and those with him went out of the city. He stopped at the last house on the outskirts of Jerusalem and watched those fleeing with him. He counted them as they went by. And uh, coming with him, verse 18 mentions three groups. There were Carathites, Pelathites, and Gittites. These are foreigners. These are non-Israelites. David had hired them to serve as his personal bodyguard. It's the common practice in the day. Just imagine it. They would have loyalty to the king because he's paying them, but because they don't have any other relatives in the nation, they wouldn't have any other interests in the nation, and thus they would be more likely to be loyal to the guy who's paying them in the face of a coup. So you'd hire foreigners to be your bodyguard. And the text focuses in particular on a man by the name of Ittai. Ittai, a man from Gath. If you're searching for a baby name, that would be a fine one. Uh, and, and David and Ittai talk. There's, in fact, there's, there's five conversations in chapters 15 and 16. We're going to look at three of them today and the other two next week, Lord willing. But uh, look here what David says to Ittai in verse 19. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. It's interesting, he calls him King Absalom there. <laughs> Verse 20, you came only yesterday. I think that's an exaggeration. And today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. Here's the old David. The old David is back, he's concerned about Ittai, and he wishes him the Lord's kindness and faithfulness. Those are, the, the, that word kindness is, is our favorite Hebrew word, chesed, loyal love. May God's loyal love and his faithfulness be with you. Aside from the word holy in the Old Testament, these two words are used most often to describe God's character. God is a God of kindness and faithfulness. This morning when we read some from Psalm 57, verse 3 says, God sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness, his kindness and his faithfulness, his chesed. David's on the run for his life 
and he is concerned about Ittai, and he blesses him in the midst of it. This is the old David. Generous, faith-filled, compassionate, wise. Uh, Ittai will have none of it. That's the kind of guy you want to be with, right? That's not the kind of guy you want to leave. So, verse 19, um, actually verse 20, Hittai swears by the name of the Lord and uh, by, by God's life and David's life. Look, Ittai replied to the king, verse 21, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever the, my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. This is, uh, I'm, I'm going to be with you. The word Ittai means with me. And Ittai, with me, says to David, I'm going to be with you. Wherever you go, in life or death, I'm going to swear in God's name to you that I'm going to do this. This actually should remind you that his words echo what David's great-great-grandmother Ruth had said. Ruth had married into David's family, and when her husband died, her mother-in-law said, go back to your own people, you're a foreigner, go back. And she said, no, I, I'm going to be with you. It was a, it was a commitment not just to um, God's people, but to God himself. Now let's trace this idea through the, the, the scriptures. Let's think about this for a minute. Ittai is one of the many faithful Gentiles in the Bible. In the Bible, there are Jews and Gentiles. There's the descendants of Abraham and, and those who are not descendant of Abraham, uh, descendants of Abraham. Uh, the Jews are, are, are the recipients of God's promises. And, and, and there are Gentiles who, who trust in the God of the Jews and, and follow him faithfully. And they make vows like this. Rahab, Ruth, Jethro, Ittai. Uh, they're outsiders who become insiders by faith. In the New Testament, believing Jews and Gentiles together form one new body, the church. Now think about this with me here. Jesus was, by and large, rejected by his own people, and much of the New Testament is written to Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus. So here's another link between David and Jesus. David being rejected by his own, his own son is trying to rebel against him, and Ittai the Gittite swears loyalty to him. This passage, I think, reminds us of the call that we have to help one another in the midst of crises. In the coming weeks, we're going to see a lot of names, a lot of friends that David has who are loyal to him and who, who care for him and encourage him. We've seen this theme before in Samuel. Do you remember David's friend, Jonathan? Oh, David must miss Jonathan a lot right now, don't you think? First huh. Samuel twenty three sixteen says that Jonathan helped David find strength in God. Next week uh, during our service, we're going to read our church covenant together. Uh, and it says, We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another. It's a wonderful phrase. It's, it's good to know that someone else is committed to watching over you affectionately, carefully. Our doctrinal statement says that one of the signs of the work of the Spirit in our church is the fruit of the Spirit. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we love one another and we're patient with one another and we're gentle and kind toward one another. In crisis, we hold one another up. This is our DNA as the people of God. The Bible orients us this way. Ross Douthat, in his book, Bad Religion, wrote about a trend in the United States. He actually quotes a philosopher named Ronald 
uh, Dworkin, listen, the United States has witnessed a hundredfold increase in the number of professional caregivers since 1950. Our society boasts 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical social workers, 105,000 mental health counselors, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, 30,000 life coaches, and hundreds of thousands of non-clinical social workers and substance abuse counselors as well. Listen to what he said. Most of those professionals, not all of them, but most of their professionals spend their days helping people cope with everyday life problems, not true mental illness. He said, this means under our very noses a revelation has occurred in the personal dimensions of life such that millions of Americans must now pay professionals to listen to their everyday life problems. The result is a nation where gurus and therapists have filled the roles once occupied by spouses and friends and churches. So we serve one another in crises. We serve through a variety of of gifts. Some of you cook. Your love language is pasta. And you share it with meatloaf. Some of you write notes. Some of you pray. In a recent membership interview, one of the newer members of our church said that one of her greatest joys is praying for people, asking God to protect them and, and, and help them. Some of you help others through crisis, through, through um, teaching in a Bible study or in a growth group. You prepare them in advance for what's going to happen. We sing uh, that song, the servant song, occasionally. One of the verses says, I will hold the Christ light for you in the nighttime of your fear. I will hold my hand out to you and speak the peace you long to hear. Isn't it beautiful? Itaiva Gittite says, I'll be with you wherever you go, in life and in death, I'll help you. And, and David, over the, the next few weeks, we'll see this in the chapters, is going to receive help from a lot of people that God is going to bring his way. Now, let's move on here to the second element of David's response, shall we? Um, first uh, first uh, phrase, more generally, I said that uh, receive the encouraging support of friends. Now, second, renew your confidence in God's sovereignty. Renew your confidence in God's sovereignty. Now, what we're going to see here, so David, the first thing I mentioned is these friends is something that David receives. Here, we're going to see David at work. He's going to do some stuff. He's going to be active. And, and what he's going to do, number two and three, are, are David at work, and, and the friendship is the oil that's going to soothe the gears of David's actions. See how that, that works together? Now, uh, verse 24 tells us that as David was leaving the city, they carried the ark with him. Now, why in the world did they take the ark with David as he's going? Uh, You remember the ark. It's this small box that was the most significant symbol of God's presence. Why are they taking it out of the city with David? Uh, Well, there's a couple of reasons. One's not in the text. Um, Well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself here, aren't I? Why are they taking it out? They're taking it out because David is associated with God's presence and the ark goes with David, the king. That's maybe why they're taking it out. David says, though, to take it back. Now, that's why. A couple of reasons. One's not in the text itself. Um, I think David is thinking to himself that 
He is the one who brought the ark into the, into the city of Jerusalem. He's not going to be responsible for it coming out of the city of Jerusalem. Way back a long time ago, um, Moses had made this prophecy that when the nation was settled in the land, God was going to pick a place for his presence to dwell. And he, David believes, has picked Jerusalem. And David has brought the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's place. He's fulfilled scripture by bringing that Ark in. And he's not going to be responsible for it leaving its home that God had picked for it. So I think it's one reason why he wants it to go back. The second reason he wants it to go back, though, is because his confidence is not in the Ark It's in God himself and in his presence. Do you remember? That's a long time ago. Uh, It was a year ago when we started studying the book of Samuel, way back in the first couple chapters. um, uh, The Israelites were at war with the Philistines. And uh, they went to battle, and the Israelites lost the first battle miserably. So they were going to go to the second battle in this war. And what did they decide to do? They said, you know what? If we had the ark with us, and if we could take it into battle, that would force God to protect us. We're going to use this ark as a superstitious object, and we're going to manipulate God, control God by the box, because we've got the box. And David is not going to take the box, because his confidence is not in his ability to control God, but in in the fact that God controls everything. Look at verses 25 and 26. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Robert Alter is a fine Jewish scholar in a book that he wrote about this passage of Scripture. He says that he thinks David is being fatalistic. Eh, whatever happens, it'll happen. What can I do about it, right? But David's not being fatalistic at all. He is instead entrusting himself into the hands of God, the Lord he knows is abounding in kindness and and faithfulness. There's an instinct in David to lean on the Lord. I've told you before about our Bernese mountain dog, our dog Stella. She's weighs 75 pounds. She's small for her breed. She's big and hairy and mostly black. And before Stella came into our uh, lives, we read a lot about uh, Bernese mountain dogs. People call them burners. And one of the things that people write about is the burner lean. Bernese mountain dogs are well known for leaning on you. So there's times that we come home and Stella will sit down next to us and she'll lean in and she'll look at us with these big brown eyes, just like this. Leans in. David here is leaning onto God's providence. Is that your instinct in the midst of crisis? In 2008, when his uh, daughter Maria was killed in a terrible car accident, Stephen Curtis Chapman said, that every crisis that we encounter will either push us toward God or it will push us away from Him. What's your instinct when crisis comes? It's not hard to find people for whom moments of crisis push them away from God. Steven Pinker is a psychologist. He's a, a teacher at Harvard University. He's written a lot of popular books. And he was on his book tour uh, for a new book that he's written called Enlightenment Now recently. Steven Pinker is not a Christian. In fact, he's the opposite. And, and someone, uh, he's a, a somewhat aggressive atheist, 
actually. And on his book tour, he was asked about the recent school shootings in Florida. What do you think about this? And he said, the Bible says that God is a good shepherd. What kind of shepherd allows children to be murdered at school? Now, Stephen Pinker, by asking that question, is, is raising an issue that, that uh, religious people have, have thought about for centuries. The problem that confronts us. How is it possible that a good God can tolerate evil things that are in the world over which he rules? Good God rules everything. There's terrible evil. How can that be? Stephen Pinker and, and people like him raise those issues as if it's, as if it's the trump card that is going to silence all belief. If, he, if Stephen Pinker can ask this question, then how can you possibly have any faith? You should all be atheists. That's the way he raises this question. They, they raise it without giving any heed to all the ways that Christians for hundreds of years have been talking about this. If you want more help in this issue and you want to read philosophy, you should read Alvin Plantinga. If you want help for this and you read some, want to read something more popular, you should read Johnny Erickson Tata. Christians have been writing about this for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not like it's a question that we've never thought of before. Oh my goodness, devastating my faith. One piece of the argument that, that goes on in, in that debate is acknowledging the fact that God's mind is bigger than yours. God is wiser and he's more insightful than you are. His understanding of everything that happens far exceeds yours. You understand this if you're a, a parent. You understand this dynamic, don't you? See, part of what is involved in the obedience of your children is that they have to acknowledge that you know more than they do. That, that's part of submissive obedience. See, little children are convinced that things like bedtime and brushing their teeth are curses that are going to ruin their lives. Brushing your teeth and going to bed is detrimental to your happiness. That's what two-year-olds think. 42-year-olds can't wait to go to bed, but two-year-olds are absolutely convinced that if I go to bed now, if I brush my teeth, it's going to ruin my life. You as a parent know otherwise, right? Part of glad obedience on the part of those little children means surrendering to your superior knowledge. They have to, they have to lean on your insight. Is your instinct to lean on God? We learn this for the first time as followers of Jesus in the gospel itself, don't we? The Bible tells us that the good news about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is viewed by some people as foolishness, and it's viewed by some people as weakness. The idea that God would rescue people from the consequences of their sin, and he would do it so magnificently as to deliver the death now to all evil, even the evil that inspires school shooters, that he would do that through the cross seems preposterous to some people. But to followers of Jesus, it's the epitome of the wisdom of God. Clearly, God has greater insight into these matters than we do. I don't have all the answers, of course, to all the questions that people ask. I don't know the reasons and the purposes. I've just said God's understanding is greater than mine. But what the Bible does tell us about is it tells us about the greatest act of evil that was ever done. 
the greatest evil that was perpetuated on the planet happened almost 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem when human beings crucified the Son of God. So the greatest evil that could ever take place and it was part of God's foreordained plan to completely destroy evil and rescue those who turn to Him in faith to offer them forgiveness and life to those who will trust in Him. You've already leaned on Him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have already leaned on Him for your eternity. And David here is modeling for us this call that the Bible issues to continue to lean in the midst of crisis. Now here's the third element of David's response. Act wisely. Act wisely. Verse 28 tells us that uh, David has put two spies in the city of Jerusalem, right? He put the, the sons of the priests in the city as spies for him because what he wants is information. And then in verse 31, though, he discovers that his former friend and counselor Ahithophel is with Absalom. Oh, Ahithophel. Ahithophel is so widely respected that people are going to follow Ahithophel in following Absalom. And Ahithophel is, is, is um, wily. And he's going to give Absalom really good advice. So what does David do? Well, first thing he does is he prays. Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And then I think God answers his prayer immediately because another friend, Hushai, shows up. So we have Ittai, and now we have Hushai. And David sends Hushai back into the city to spy for him. We're going to see Hushai is going to play a crucial role in the next few chapters. David, that old fox, look what he's doing. He prays and he plots. And those pieces fit together. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. Trust in God and plan. Pray and plot. Both of them together. They work together. Here's a way to respond. Here's a way to evaluate your response to a crisis. If you have a moment to think about it. Will you receive the encouragement that friends bring? Will you receive that encouragement? I suppose in order for them to respond, to encourage you, they need to know about your crisis, right? It's not fair to ask your friends to guess what's wrong with you. Not fair. So are you going to receive the encouragement that friends will bring? Second, you can ask yourself, what in your life shows this renewed sense of trust in God's sovereignty? Is there something in your life that shows this renewed sense of trust in God? And third, what can I do? What action can I take? How can I act? What, I'll do as, full as, as much as I can, I will act. What should I do? Most of us are usually inclined to do one or maybe two of those things, and, and doing so, intention, you intentionally hobble yourself when you won't do all three. Uh, if you isolate yourself, you're violating the DNA of Christianity. If you won't trust in God, you're toying with fatalism. If, if, some of you, because all you do is act, you're living under the illusion that you can control things yourself. All three of those things balance each other out. I listened to a podcast from Slate Magazine, and uh, one of the recent episodes, they released it over the holidays, featured the hosts trying to answer strange questions. They call them conundrums. 
So people write in with all kinds of questions. Here's one of the questions that they were talking about. Would you rather have a clean body and wear dirty clothes or have a dirty body and wear clean clothes? It's a wonderful question, right? So, um, well, they started thinking about it. And all three of them, they like to hike. So inevitably, they started thinking about being out in the woods for a week hiking. No showers. One of the hosts said, oh, that feeling. You know, you're sweaty and gross and no one wants to be near you, but that feeling of putting on a clean pair of socks. Ah. Then they started talking about when you get off the trail a little further and how, how you get to go uh, take a shower. You step into the shower and you soap up everywhere and you rinse away the crustiness of sweaty labor. Everyone in this room knows what that's like. Stepping into the shower. Oh. And you get out and you feel, what do you say? I feel like myself again. You know that feeling? So here's David. And, and he's back. And all three of these things are, are part of his story, especially in this crisis. His friends, his faith, and action. All three of those are part of his story. Are they part of your story too? Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we think about these things this morning, we are reminded of the fact that you tell us dozens of times in your word to trust you and to renew again our commitment to trust in you. You tell us this over and over and over again. Paul writes paragraphs about it and you tell countless stories about it. And here we have looked at one of them again. Lord, you probably tell us to do this over and over again because you know that we need to hear it. We confess, like the hymn writer says, we're prone to wander. We're prone to wander in our trust. We're prone to fear. We're prone to worry. And you call us back again and again and again to trust you and to act and to receive the grace that comes from the encouragement of others. Lord, I, I pray we, we all struggle in one of these areas at, at least. We are loners or we're fatalist worriers or we're, we're passive. We all, we all we'll fail here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember your great servant David and how he responded. He knows, he knew that you are a God of kindness and faithfulness. Seal that to us so that we might receive your grace from our friends, trust you, and act wisely. Do that for us, we pray, together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.